I started in 1858 when he was 24 years old. Charles Spurgeon records, My spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. Uh, you might not know this, but Spurgeon, along with many people, struggled with uh, 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 depression, what, was ca- what is called causeless depression. Um, he, he, he describes it as this shapeless, undefinable, yet all-beclouding hopelessness. He wrote, it cannot be reasoned with. He said, fighting this type of depression is as difficult as fighting with with mist. And there probably were some medical reasons that he struggled with this issue. But uh, a depression where he couldn't find the, uh, the, the, he couldn't push out of the, the stubborn darkness, the fog. And really couldn't pinpoint circumstances or events in his life that might play into this. This causeless depression. In Micah chapter 1, our passage this morning, the prophet here is not battling causeless depression. He has very good reason to mourn. If you haven't yet, open your Bible, the Word of God, to Micah chapter 1. I'd like to share a message with you this morning simply called the Lament. Lament. As you know, in our Old Testament scriptures, there's a whole book dedicated to this kind of a thing, a mourning. It's called the book of Lamentations, written by Jeremiah. And in chapter 1, verses 8 through 16, Micah is mourning over the coming judgment of God upon Judah, and he can scarcely hold himself together. Psalm 50 says, The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun into the going down thereof. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before Him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about Him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens shall declare his righteousness. For God is judge himself. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. That's really what we looked at last week uh, in verses 1 through uh, verse 7 here. As Micah here, let me scroll ahead to uh, what, we, what we looked at last week here. Micah looked at God's summons. God has summoned Israel in His royal courtroom. And He says, I have this testimony against you. And it was a global summons. He, he summons all of creation to come and listen to His testimony against Israel. And it was a governing summons because He says, I am coming from my court, from my holy temple, from where he rules. Then we saw last week as well that he is coming down from his glory and he's coming into the gloom and darkness with the fire of his holiness. His glory, the weight of his glory, the light of his his glory, the heat that, that comes from him as a consuming fire to the sins of Israel. 
And the reason was they had broken God's covenant. They had broken the stipulations of the law. They had turned from worshipping Him to worshipping not only uh, physical, tangible items of stone and, and wood that they could touch, but also, Ezekiel says, idols of the heart. And we look deeply into what idols of the heart are. And then at the end here is the sentencing. And in the sentencing here, he lays his, his charge against specifically the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria. You remember Israel had been divided after Solomon had, had turned to other idols. His son Rehoboam, uh, through an, uh, an act of foolishness, had divided the kingdom into the northern and southern tribes. And in verses 1 through 7, and particularly, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel is dealt with, Samaria being its capital. And there was a sentencing that happened. A sentencing, he says in verse 7, All the graven images there shall be beaten to pieces, all the hires thereof shall be burned with a fire, and all the idols thereof will I lay desolate, for she hath gathered of the hire of an harlot, and they shall return to the hire of an harlot. We saw the ruin, and we saw the repayment that God would do to Israel, the consequences of their sin. And in verse 8, he says, Therefore, I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the dragons in mourning as the owls. See what happens. The things that are prophesied in Micah chapter 1 verses 1 through 7 happen around 722 B.C. 700 years before the Lord Jesus Christ came upon this earth in human form. Uh, the Assyrians swept down from the north, from Nineveh, from Asher, that, that land uh, above them in the north, which is modern day Iraq. And uh, they, they took captive the northern kingdom of Israel. They absolutely slaughtered the people. And some of the things and atrocities they did would be very similar to some of the things you're hearing about the Middle Middle East today. And verse 8 says, therefore, or because of this, because of the coming Assyrian capture of Samaria, Micah understands that Judah and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, will also suffer at the hands of Assyria. That will happen about 22 years later, 700 B.C. So between chapter 1, verses 2 and 7, and chapter 1, verses 8 through 16, there are about two decades that will happen, or this will, this will occur. And in this portion, Micah wants the southern, king Judah, southern kingdom of Judah to understand what happened to Samaria, the northern kingdom, is a foretaste of what will happen to Judah in its doom and gloom. And verses 8 through 16 is almost like a Jewish funeral dirge. As in verses 8 through 9, he mourns for their affliction that will happen in Judah, he says, all the way up to the very gates of Jerusalem. Because of their sin. Then in verses 10 through 15, he tells the heathen not to gloat about what happens to Judah, the the Gentiles, and then he predicts what will occur, and he uses things that aren't going to be very obvious in our English translation. They're more obvious in the Hebrew, but I'll try to explain it here. Not that I'm a Hebrew expert, but the others are. And he uses word plays and puns of the places in Judah that will see the affliction and exile of its people. And then finally, in verse 16, he calls the daughter of Zion to mourn with him because her children will go into exile, be taken away. The first thing I want us to see this morning is in anguished compassion. In anguished compassion. Verse 8 says, Therefore I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make 
A wailing like the dragons, that's that's the word for jackals in the desert. And mourning as the owls. God's anger. Yahweh's anger against the sin of the southern kingdom. It must fall. And sometimes we hear about God's wrath and God's anger, and we put it in contradiction to His love. We talk about His love, and then we say, but He's also wrathful. And in reality... God's anger is not not in contrast to His love, but it is a function out of His love. He is a personal God. God's wrath, His anger, is how the God who is love responds to evil and His good creation. Now, if somebody was causing someone you love to suffer, you would not just sit there in apathy and twiddle your thumbs and yawn. And so it is with the Lord. He is the Father of light in whom there is no darkness. He cares deeply and He cannot be indifferent to evil and sin. You see, the Father loves His Son so deeply and eternally that rejection of the goodness of the eternal beauty of His Son must be dealt with. And that, by the way, is what every sin can ultimately be traced back to. The rejection of the beauty of the Son of God. Not only does He love His Son, but the Bible teaches He also loves His children. He, has, uh, he hates the oppression of them. And He'll root out sin. He'll even root out sin in His own children, won't He? It's called discipline. As a father would to his children. So they can be freed from the captivity of it. And certainly, He also loves this world. He created. And He hates all evil in it. He is a God that truly cares. If He was not a God who didn't, if He was a God who did not care, we would not have passages and portions like this in our scripture. So when you hear about the wrath of God, you need to understand we have a God who is passionate, who cares deeply about His world and His people. He is pure, and one day He will ultimately destroy all evil. So we might enjoy Him in a purified world, wherein dwells perfect righteousness and a new creation, the Bible teaches us. But, he, but Mikey here is anguished compassion because he is reflecting God's heart on this. He is wailing, he is howling, he, is, uh, he has a, first of all, a distressed cry. A distressed cry, and there's an outline in your bulletin on the green uh, handout there, if you'd like to, to track and follow along here. But he is in a state of agitation. He's weeping and wailing, he says, I will go stripped and naked. The idea is barefoot and naked. And, and these are signs of mourning in that culture. He's identifying with the people. He feels as as desolate and alone as a jackal. Jackals kind of roam the desert in the eastern world, the Middle Eastern world at night. It's a nighttime scavenger. Uh, And as an owl, again, a a, a bird of the night, live in desolate places. And he sees his punishment. I will come later on down the road. He sees it from God's view. It's already happening. You'll make a wailing and a mourning. So he has an anguished compassion for the people he's pronouncing judgment on and a distressed cry and also displayed condolence. It's not just words. It's not just emotions. It's also, you see what he says here, I will go stripped and naked. It's a display of what will happen in the morning because of the sin. His heart reflecting the heart of God. It's broken. It's broken. Howls like a jackal. He moans like an owl. 
been broken over sin. Look in verse 9. It's not only an anguished compassion, but here in this passage, there is an advanced cancer. Verse 9 says, For her wound is incurable, for it is come unto Judah. He has come even unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Mike is saying that there is a malignancy that is spread and it is terminal. It can't be reversed, it's incurable, it's inevitable. The sins of the northern kingdom of Israel had seeped into Judah, and the wound would come on her too. Judgment would reach even the very gate of Jerusalem. That happens in 701 B.C., when Sennacherib of the Assyrian army destroys 46 towns in Judah, and then he surrounds Jerusalem with Hezekiah in charge. So it was an advanced cancer that had spread into Judah and would spill even up to the gates of Jerusalem. 2 Kings 18 and 19. You see, our sin doesn't just affect us. It influences, it spreads. It's viral. Fourthly, verses 10 through 15, there is an authorized changeover. There is a reversal that will happen here. And this is where there are several play on words and puns um, that are not as obvious in the English. Um, the very first one is in verse 10 he says declare ye it not at Gath weep ye not at all tell it not in Gath what Micah is saying here is he's saying Gath which was where the Philistines dwelt you remember Goliath he was of Gath Gath was the place where the Gentile uh, was, was a representation of the Gentile nations he's saying Gath Gentiles heathen don't rejoice about the demise of Judah Show some discretion here. Declare ye yet not at Gath, weep ye not at all. That's a referral back to 2 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 20. In the life of David, as he was uh, coming to his uh, rightful reign as king, you remember the predecessor Saul uh, wanted the, the reign to be in his line. And Jonathan, Saul's son, was lined up to be king. But in 2 Samuel chapter 1, um, Saul and Jonathan are killed by the Philistines in battle. And David is in, in mourning and, and weeping about this. And, and uh, he, he, he says in 2 Samuel 1 verse 20, he says, Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. He's warning the heathen, the unbelievers, not to gloat over God's discipline of His people. Though Israel is being punished, Micah knows they will be the nation in the future who the light of the gospel will come through, the pagan nations. Gloat not. There's the discretion of Gath, and then there's a portion we're going to spend much of our, our time on this morning. There is the dissolution of glory. The glory of Israel is just going to dissolve. It's going to fall apart. It's just going to melt. And so in, the, in verses 10b uh, through 15, uh, Micah now talks to nine strongholds that he is going to use as omens of what are going to happen in Israel. And these places are in about a 10 mile radius of Micah's little home village of Morsheth Gath, and probably can be seen from where he lives. 
And perhaps he stands outside of his village and he sees in the distance this one, and this one, and this one, and this one, and a radius around his village. He pronounces these judgments. They are strongholds in Judah, but they will have a reversal of power. They will be made weak. The Assyrians will conquer them. They will slaughter many, and they will take the people that they choose to exile and live with them in Assyria. The towns listed there are part of the destructive march of the Assyrian army under Sennacherib to the gates of Jerusalem in 701 B.C. And by the way, archaeologists prove this. And Sennacherib was somebody who liked to talk about himself. And he has many annals that records his accomplishments and victories. He proudly portrays the defeat of Lachish on a wall of his palace. Uh, and he boasts of having King Hezekiah of, of Jerusalem shut up, like he says, like a bird in his cage. And if you were to go to the, 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 uh, the, the, the city of Nineveh today, um, and you were able to get in there, which you really can't now because it's occupied by ISIS, um, you could see excavations um, where Sennacherib's palace has been uncovered, and these things are true. By the way, Jerusalem doesn't fall at that time. God miraculously intervenes, and he gives Jerusalem more mercy. It's about 588, 586 that Jerusalem is plundered and taken captive by the Babylonians. But he says this in verse 10. Declare ye not at Agath, weep ye not at all. So he tells the nations, the pagans, to be discreet. Don't gloat in the punishment. He says, in the house of Ephra, or Beth Ephra, Roll thyself in the dust. Roll thyself in the dust. Um, Bethlehafra. Dust town is what it was known as. The town becomes dusted. Dust town becomes dusted. House of dust. Dust town becomes dusted. Then he talks about Schaefer. If you look with me in verse 11, he says, Pass ye away, thou inhabitant of Safer, or Shafer, having thine shame naked. When they are attacked by Assyria, Shafer, which named for this town means beautiful or pleasant, will become the opposite of its name. It will be a town of nakedness and shame. It is shamed. Zanan 11b, he says, The inhabitants of Zanan come not forth in the morning of Bethesel. He shall receive of you his standing. That's the idea here of Zanan uh, is, is, uh, is the place of going forth or going out, coming out. And they become the shut-in place as they are surrounded. In contrast with their name, the Zanites would not dare to go outside their city walls because of their warfare. And the going forth town becomes shut in. Eleven B, he says, the inhabitants of Zanin came not forth in the morning of Beth Ezel. He shall receive of you his standing. Beth Ezel is the house of protection, the protection town. And what happens to it? It becomes unsafe. It becomes unsafe. No one would go to Beth Ezel, the house of nearness or proximity for protection, because that town itself would be in mourning and in need of help. So Beth Ezel, and get these up here on the screen for you to, to follow here and see the reversals here. Protection town becomes unsafe. Beth Ezel. Then verse 12, Maroth. He says, For the inhabitant of Maroth waited carefully for good, but evil came down from the Lord into the gate of Jerusalem. Maroth. Maroth. <clears throat> um, 
as the sweet town, the place of sweetness, it becomes bitterness. And the people would writhe in pain while they were waiting for relief from Jerusalem. Thinking, Jerusalem's going to bail us out. But no relief would come because the destruction would go all the way to the gate of Jerusalem, as is said in verse 9. Verse 9. For the wound is incurable, for it is coming to Judah. He's even unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Maroth. Verse 13, O thou inhabitant of Lachish, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She is the beginning of the sin of the daughters of Zion, for the transgression of Israel were found in thee. Sarcastically, he urged the citizens of Lachish, or, or it, uh, it, it's the idea of horse town, known for their chariots. He says, get a chariot ready for you to escape. But also remember, chariots are coming. The Assyrians are known for their chariots. Their escape attempts are going to be in vain. Everything they built their glory on would be crumbled. And Horsetown becomes taken by Assyrian chariots. Notice what he says about Lachish. It had been the beginning of sin to the citizens of Israel. He says, in thee were found the transgressions of Israel. And perhaps the citizens of Lachish were those who had embraced the corruptions of the northern kingdom. They departed from the pure worship. And when the sin entered that city, it crept by degree by degree into some of the neighboring places. And the whole kingdom of Judah became corrupt, even unto Jerusalem. It opened the door to ungodly superstitions. Suffers the punishment. In thee, he says, were found the transgressions of Israel. Verse 14. Therefore shalt thou give presents to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Oxib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. Moresheth Gath um, would be given parting gifts, perhaps by Jerusalem. And, and parting gifts here is the, is the word for betrothal gifts. Moresheth Gath is, is the idea of, a, of the bride town. And the bride town will be given away. It'll be given away. Given away to Gentiles, to the pagans. A father would give his daughter away. And this time, the father, Jerusalem, would be forced to give more Shethgath away to the pagans, to the Assyrian king. Sad picture here. Oxib in verse 14 the deception town, they become the ones deceived. They're unable to offer help to Israel's kings, and so the place of deception becomes the ones who are the deceived. Marsheth, the next one here, he says in verse 15, Yet will I bring an heir unto thee, O inhabitant of Marsheth. Marsheth is the place of, of, uh, of conquering. Uh, and he says, I'll bring, I'll bring an heir, a conqueror to you. Sennacherib will go against you. Marsheth is a place of possessions. And it will become a possession. It will become possessed by the Assyrians. And then, he talks about Agilom. In verse 15, he shall come into Agilom, the glory of Israel. What is he saying there? Well, when Saul was being pursued, or David was being pursued by Saul, and, and you can see this in 1 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 1, he flees into a cave, and that's where his refuge is. His refuge, his peace, his, his, his safety from Saul's uh, uh, pursuit of him. That's where he hung out. Not a very glamorous place. I mean, remember David was promised to be king, and Agilom was far from being a palace, a cave. 
But what had to happen to David as he was being pursued by Saul is going to be what happens to Israel. The glory of Israel, probably her leaders, would be shamed by becoming fugitives in Ajalom. They would live in caves. Folks, what does this tell us here? That there is a great reversal. That the glory of Israel is being dissolved because they have departed from the glory of Jehovah. God's discipline is serious. He makes the first last. He makes the top bottom. He makes the exalted humbled. He makes the powerful weak. And then in verse 16, there is an assigned confinement. An assigned confinement. Make thee bald, he says, and pull thee for thy delicate children. Enlarge thy baldness as the eagle, for they are gone in thy captivity from thee. What's he talking about here? Even the children, the young children in those towns would be exiled by the Assyrians. Can you, who have been parents or grandparents, picture that? Can you picture a group of people like ISIS coming in your town and taking your children away? Exiled by the Assyrians. And this should cause the people of the area to mourn. Which he says, make thee bald, shave your heads. With heads shaved, they look like bald vultures. Enlarge thy baldness as the eagle. He says that pull the, for thy delicate children, this is the idea of, their, of the children of your delight. The children that you should be uh, enjoying and raising for the glory of God, you did not. They will be taken away from you by the pagans. So, there is a misdelight. In Deuteronomy 6, they were to teach their children the word of God. When they woke up, when they laid down, throughout the day, as they walked, as they did their duty, as they worked, Throughout their day, they were to share who God is, His glory, the covenant that they have with Yahweh. And because of their sin, their children of their delight will be taken away. The pleasant ones, the delicate children, would endure a very unpleasant experience. They would join more than 200,000 captives, according to Sennacherib's records. They took away in this expedition. Sennacherib had a tendency to over-exaggerate and brag about himself. But that's a good portion, isn't it? And he says, For they have gone into captivity from thee. There is a mournful displacement. They have been exiled, gone. How sad. Lament. Folks, I think this passage here shows us that we need a healthy fear of the Lord. And one of the ways this comes is by seeing how God in His purity and out of His love deals with evil in this world. We talked last week about the idols of the heart that can subtly be capturing our worship. And this morning, I wonder if in your hearts and in your lives there are any similarities with these strongholds that God has pronounced to, uh, to, to Micah that will be reversed and taken down, that they need to be exposed in your heart for what they truly are. In the house of Ophrah, Beth Ophrah, Yahweh had graciously offered them, uh, Israel, a covenant alignment with him through which the promised Messiah, who would be bruised for a season, would come, but would crush the serpent and cause him to eat dust. 
but Ophrah chose to align themselves with the agenda of the serpent. And they would eat dust with him in judgment. I wonder about us, about you. Is your life aligned with Christ's goals, his purposes? Of creating His image in you and and seeing His church display the glory of God? Or are you more attracted to the kingdom of this world that is ruled by a defeated serpent? I wonder if there's anything in your life that is a wrong reflection of what Christ came to deliver us from. Schaefer has celebrated its beauty in this life. Instead of sorting up treasure in heaven. And what they lived for had a very short shelf life. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. And what does your heart desire more than the beauty of Jesus in you? There's no greater beauty than the beauty of the Son and life in Him. And if you keep looking for beauty in anything else, ultimately, you'll find shame and exposure. Schaefer did. In fact, you might find yourself like the servant that Jesus talks about in the parable, who only lived for himself. And when the the master came back, that servant was ashamed. Does your search for identity find its destination in an empty tomb? Or this life only? Zanan had prided itself in its security, but it came to find out that they built their hopes on shifting sands. In the end... When our lives are judged, and we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, no exceptions. What will your security you based your life on be found in? Our security is what we live for. And if life in Christ is not driving what we do, we'll have found our lives built on emptiness that Jesus said is like shifting sand. But Jesus said, those who hear my voice and obey it are like A house that's built on solid rock. On a rock foundation. What's your life built on? Maroth. It looked to others to take care of themselves and bring sweetness to their lives. Peace and prosperity. But found it bitter when they... People they trusted couldn't deliver. I wonder if I'm speaking to folks who really put a lot of trust. And and we do need to trust each other. Understand that. Relationships are built on trust, aren't they? But you put everything, you put all your trust in other people. Your family, your spouse, even, your friends. And you build a life trying to please people. And you look to people for your ultimate strength instead of the eternal one who never changes. The same yesterday, today, forever. You've put people in the place of God. The Lord is your strong tower. Who are you leaning on? Lakish. It put a lot of stock into the comfort and technology of, technologies of its day for it. So it lived for this life only. And they end up running from their technology defenses when it is tested in the Lord's judgment. And it tells us something. Are the things in your life that you are building on, that you are living for, going to prove worthless in the time of God's judgment against sin? Have you seen your desires in light of eternity and where they line up and fit or don't? Have you pondered how you stack up against the vastness of eternity? What a man sows, that will he also reap. Marcia was the bride town. They lost their bride to the enemy. Oxib is the wrong place to put confidence in because of its deceit. I'll tell you, 
The serpent usurper of this world promises big things. Great things. Wonderful things. He promised even those things to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Do you not think He's promising those things to you as well? And His deceitfulness? But He delivers nothing. Because His destruction is in the end. Are there lies that you are believing about His values in this life? Are there things that you have swallowed that is falsely motivating your life? See, Micah mourned for his people and her sin. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are those who mourn. He was talking about mourning about sin. For they shall be comforted. Brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God is getting into your closets through His Word. In the back rooms of your heart where you've stored wrong thinking, wrong, wrong living, wrong loves, wrong recognition, then you need to get on your face and mourn and repent. Jesus loves us too much to let our bellies be our gods. To have a form of godliness without power. And to live in lackadaisical attitudes toward Him. This Jesus saves us from the wrath of God against sin. And He pays such a precious price that He owns us in our lives and He has brought us from slaves of bondage to join heirs with His Son and His family. He's delivered His Spirit as a down payment of what He will fully and finally deliver in eternity. Our old lives are crucified with the Messiah and we've been brought into new covenant life into the family of God. The perfect life of Jesus through the Holy Spirit has been delivered into us so we can set our affections on things above because Colossians says we are hidden in Christ. Micah's sobering passage this morning is a call to turn from living our own way and to live in Christ who he said in John 14.6 was the only way. The only life, the only truth. Let's pray.